The following audio is from a sermon series entitled King Jesus, studying the life and work of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 7, 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephathra, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. We are in the seventh chapter. We're just finishing up the seventh chapter in Mark. And um, I'm just going to prepare you now. I am I'm reading a, a book right now on the life of John Newton. And John Newton was, he's, he's been dead uh, almost a couple hundred years now. He was a slave trader. He was a captain of a boat. Uh, he was one of the most wicked men that you could imagine from his own words. Um, and he was a slave trader. And God, he would literally go and they would steal, steal slaves from Africa and they would bring them back to, the Brit- uh, to, to Britain. And, um, and God rocked him one night uh, in a storm coming back, and he said, if you save me, I'll give you my life. And many of us have probably been in a storm, and we've said things like that, but the unique thing was this was actually a moment where God arrested him, God changed his heart, and he became one of the leading voices uh, to end slavery and to end sl- the, 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 the slave trade. And he wrote a song called Amazing Grace. If you've ever, I'm sure everybody's heard the song Amazing Grace. And I'm reading this book about him and I'm purchasing all of his life works. So I'm just going to prepare you for the next six months. You're probably going to hear a lot of John Newton quotes. Okay. And I'm going to start this one off today by one. So go ahead and pull that slide up there. And uh, I want you to see this that I came across this week in reading. He says this, to know Jesus is the shortest description of true grace. To know him better is the surest mark of growth and grace. And to know him perfectly is eternal life. Okay? And that's what we're doing as we're studying this book of Mark. We're wanting to know Jesus. For those of you who don't know Jesus, the real Jesus, we want to know him better because that's how we grow in grace. And to know him perfectly, this is the new heavens and the new earth that we're going to be talking about a little bit this morning, that is eternal life. That's our great hope and our great expectation. Let me pray. We're going to jump into this. We're going to talk about it. Let me pray before I get going this morning. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for all that are gathered here. We thank you for all that came out from all across our cities um, to worship you. Uh, to hear you, to hear from you, from your word. And I pray that you would help me this morning, that I'm a sinner, um, that I am not capable, that I am bent and broken and damaged goods, and um, your perfect word um, can really be uh, hindered coming through an imperfect man, an imperfect vessel like I am. So I ask that you would help me, you would think through my mind, and you would speak to my vocal cords, that you'd give me 
um, the appropriate way to say things, the appropriate affection behind them, um, that, that like we just read that quote from John Newton, that we would know Christ and we would know him better and better and better um, today. And I pray as we study your word that we would see Jesus in a new way and our lives would be changed because of it. We believe this. We ask all these things in faith. Um, in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So we are in Mark chapter 7, and we're finishing up chapter 7, and this is a critical chapter for us. Um, it's probably the most controversial chapter, I would say, in the whole book of Mark. And as we finish this chapter, we're going to get into chapter 8, obviously. And chapter 8 is kind of the, it's not really the crux, but it's, the, it's where we're starting to move downhill towards the cross. Um, the first seven chapters are really about who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? And then in the middle of chapter 8, Peter, you know, makes this statement, you are the Christ, and from there, the picture is really clear. He's the son of God, and now we're moving towards the cross. So today really is the last week that we're really checking this and studying this question, who is this man? And one of the greatest dangers for us as people, and one of the church's greatest problems in our country specifically, is that they flatten down Jesus to this one-dimensional character. And nearly everyone does it. Over the past few weeks, we've been studying Jesus in this gospel of Mark, and we've seen that he is incredibly offensive at times. He's just unequivocally bold, unapologetically bold. In the last two weeks, he called religious people hypocrites. He said they're actors. And he called another Gentile woman a dog last week. Now, if you weren't here, you should listen to the, uh, you should listen to the podcast. Okay, I'm not going to clarify that, but... <laughs> pretty crazy. Jesus called a woman a dog last week. And this is where the trouble kind of comes in. In order for us to understand the real Jesus, we have to deal with these texts. We have to take these scenes and these encounters into our understanding. You have to know this. Jesus got angry. Jesus got frustrated. Jesus used language that was offensive. And he even called people names at times. But in all of this, here it is, Jesus never did anything that wasn't the most loving thing to do in the moment at that time. Jesus is the personification of love. So we need to put that in our hat and think about that. Jesus always did the most loving thing to do in the moment, and sometimes that included calling people hypocrites and using the word dog when, when speaking to a, a woman, all right? We have to put that in our, in our framework of Jesus. And many times our idea of what is loving isn't Christ's idea of what is loving. But we cannot take these encounters and seal them off from all the other texts and all the other encounters we see in Jesus' life. But people do. Pastors do, and therefore churches do. It's been my experience that most churches don't ever deal with this side of Jesus, this tough side of Jesus, this offensive side of Jesus. That's a problem. And if you shy away from the tough side of Jesus, you're going to get a little one-dimensional Mr. Rogers version of Jesus that nicely fits into your life, without ever really rocking the boat, but that's not the real Jesus, and that Jesus is powerless to save you. But others, in a reaction to that kind of sissified version of Jesus, fall off on the other side of the horse, right? We want, we, we, 
want a Jesus who is tough and not tender. When we see the tenderness of Jesus, we get awkward. We don't know what to do with our hands, right? We, this is weird. Jesus is really tender. But week after week, we've been saying over and over and over and over, you don't get to do that. You don't get to see a side of Jesus and push away from it and say, I don't like that side of Jesus. I want a tough Jesus or I want a tender Jesus. We don't get to do that. We have to hold him together. We have to embrace the totality of who Jesus is. He's fully human. He's not a one-dimensional hothead nor a sappy sentimentalist. He's tough and tender. And if you want to know the real Jesus, you've got to see how he's perfectly tough and perfectly tender at all times. Now, why is that important? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, is a text that we all sing during Advent. Most of us probably are familiar with. This is what it says. It's a prophecy about the coming king, the coming Messiah. And this is what it says. For unto us... A child is born, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor. He's perfectly tough when he needs to be tough, when, when you are hardened and you need a slap, right? Or you need a, a, a sharp poke, right? You need a shake a little bit. When you, need some, when you need a tough encounter with Christ, he's a perfect, wonderful counselor. He's tough with you. But when you need the tenderness of Jesus, he's also perfectly tender. And we need a savior who is tender enough to know our weaknesses and come alongside us, but one who's tough enough to actually deal with the problems in our life, to actually deal with sin and its root. Like a counselor that just comes in and he just, you just sit down on the couch and they just take notes. Mm -hmm, tell me how you feel. Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh mm. how'd that make you feel? Mm -hmm. All right, how'd that make you feel? Mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. oh. Mm. And then you get up and leave. Now, listen. That's not terrible, right? We need to vent things. We need to get things off our chest. We need people to hear us. That's good. But if that's all the counselor does, right? That's really, it's not very effective. It's not going to change us. It's not going to change the way we think or change the way we feel or change the way we live our life. We need a counselor to actually say, do you think that was an appropriate response? Do you think that was the right thing to do? Do you think you handled that the right way? Do you think that was a humble response or was that your pride? We need a counselor that crosses our wills, right? If we really want to change and we really want to grow, it's no different with Jesus. Now, the past two weeks, clearly we have seen the toughness of Jesus, his fearlessness, his boldness. And this week, we're going to see his tenderness. We're going to see his tenderness in full effect. We get to see his, his touchability, and he was God, made man, came down into the flesh, and he's touchable. The God who's not touchable, the God who's as, he's as bright and shining like the sun. You guys know we do have a sun, this burning thing that was revealed to us this morning after five days of gloom, right? 
That God is, is similar to that. He's so untouchable. He's so un, un, he dwells in unapproachable light, the scriptures say. He's so holy and pure. But Jesus came with the glory of God, veiled in flesh, and he's touchable. He's knowable. And I got to admit, man, this text, it, it, was, it beat me up this week. It was a hard text to deal with. Um, it made me awkward. It made me uncomfortable. It just, I couldn't get away from it this week. And I want you to know, some of you guys just need to know this, that studying the Bible is hard. <laughs> Preaching the Bible is hard, but studying the Bible is hard too. Some of you listen to the sermons and, and you go, oh man, I don't know how he does that. It must come easy. Nah, it is not easy. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort. And honestly, it takes a lot of just beat downs. <laughs> and that's what this text kind of did to me this week, which just beat me down. And we're going to get to why, and I'll, I'll explain it to you. Um, but this text, so this text is going to show us really clearly the tenderness of Jesus, but it's not just about the tenderness of Jesus. Jesus is here. He's showing us how to change a city. Okay. He's showing us how to change a city. Now it might not be obvious to us right away, but it's there. Sacred city, our quick tagline. What are we, why are we here? We want to make disciples. We want to plant churches. We want to renew the city. That's why we're here. That's what we want to do right? But what does it mean to make disciples and plant churches and renew the city? What does that look like? Jesus is going to show us here in this passage. And this is, as we come to it, this is one of the unique passages in Mark. It's not in any of the other gospels, okay? The other three gospel accounts, this, this story is not there. And it's here, it's hidden in Mark like a little piece of dynamite, all right, that's meant to be uncovered and it's meant to go off in our life. Mark is writing this gospel to believers, Gentile believers in Rome, okay? So they're outside the covenant people of God. They're not a part of Israel. They don't have the Old Testament. They don't know the stories of the Old Testament. So when Paul, or I'm sorry, so when Mark is writing to these Romans, right? He very rarely references the Old Testament. He very rarely does. In the other gospel accounts, you get a lot of references. Mark very rarely does. But when he does, it's important, okay? It's kind of him uncovering uh, a piece of foundation, and he's kind of saying, okay, guys, you need to know this Old Testament story. You need to, this, what I'm doing right now, you need to uncover why I'm doing it, what's supporting what I'm doing, what it points back to in the story of God in the Old Testament, so that's what is going on here today. Mark is doing this. He's using a word. I'll, I'll tell you in a second. He's quoting something from the Old Testament with a very specific purpose. It's meant to carry a lot of weight, all right? It's, it's dynamite. It's explosive. It's meant to go off. And I know when you're reading your Bible, we're gonna, you would read through this and you wouldn't know that, all right? So that's why I'm, it took a little work this week. But he's trying to make an important point and trying to connect it back to the big story so they know the foundation that their faith is built upon. Now, let's, let's just jump into it, and I'm going to explain it to you. We're chapter 7, verse 31. Uh, when you're there, say there. There we go. Okay, let's read. Then he, Jesus, returned. And this is his only trip outside of Israel, right? He's outside the walls of Israel, and he's in the Gentile regions. This is his only time he did this. He returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon. To the Sea of Galilee. 
in the region of the Decapolis. Now, what is the Decapolis, okay? The Decapolis is an area with a lot of pagan influences, all right? It's a Gentile region. The Decapolis were a group of city-states that were founded and settled by the Greeks uh, following Alexander the Great's conquest of the area, okay? It's about the 4th century B.C., and by the, time of G- by the time right here of Jesus, they were a pretty prosperous trade center, right? They were kind of consolidated into a Roman alliance against a possible Jewish um, uprising, okay? So they're really anti-Jewish. It's an anti-Jewish establishment, very pagan, worship a lot of different gods. They're Gentile, okay? They're not um, Bible Belt believing Christians. Let's just put it that way, right? They're very pagan. They're very secular, And in Jesus' day, this is modern-day Lebanon. He's outside of Israel, and what we're about to see is people bring him a man who is deaf and speech-impaired. Let's read it. And they, we don't know who they are, brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on them. Okay, listen. Jesus is in a pagan context. He's in a context that is not familiar to, I'm just going to use this language, familiar to Christianity, okay? Even though it would have been familiar to the Jewish religion at the time. It's not familiar. He's he's an outsider, right? And he's in this outside where he's not really welcome. And he, you know, he serves one God and they're worshiping many gods. And these people see there's something special about this Jesus. And so they bring this man who's really broken and they bring this man to Jesus. And what's wrong with this man? He's deaf, okay? So he can't hear. Now, listen, Jesus came doing what? He came proclaiming the gospel, preaching the gospel. Well, that's pretty difficult to a person who can't hear, right? He can't hear. He has a speech impediment. He's speech impaired. What is that? That means he can't hear. He can't really speak. Imagine, um, how do you have a relationship, If you can't hear and you can't speak, it's very difficult to have any type of relationship, any type of human community with a person who can't hear and they can't speak, right? So he's going to be relationally damaged. He's going to be uh, ostracized by people. He's going to seem in many pagan contexts that he's been cursed by the gods. This man is really broken. But this is where we're meant to see the dynamite that's in this passage go off. There's far more going on here than meets the eye. When Mark says this man has a speech impediment, he uses a Greek word, mogalalos. Okay, you don't need to know that. This is what you need to know about it. That word only occurs one other place in the whole Bible. Mogalalos, that word only occurs one other place. And that's in Isaiah 35, verse 6. And we actually read it this morning as our call to worship. But I'll read it again. And Isaiah 35, here we go, big word, big word time, theological thinking hats. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach us on something this morning. Here we go. Isaiah 35 is all about the eschaton. Ooh, Google it. The eschaton comes from the Greek word that means last, okay? If you've ever heard the word eschatology, it's the study of the last things. It's the study of the end times. We use that language a lot, the end times. The eschaton is the last story in God's book, okay? It's the last chapter in God's great story. 
It's the end of the world as we know it. This is what the eschaton is. It's the end times. It's the last days. It's however you want to say it. But this is the eschaton. And Isaiah 35 is all about the end times. It's all about what's going to happen when the king comes back. And in Isaiah 35, we're going to read two important things. One is in verse 2. Isaiah mentions this. Listen, that the desert will rejoice and blossom. Throwing off its curse and Lebanon will see the glory of the Lord. So that's important because Jesus here is in Lebanon. All right, make that connection. And secondly, in verses five and six, it says this. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. And shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, Mogalalos, sing for joy. Those are the only two times that word's ever used. In Isaiah 35, it's hundreds of years before the birth of Christ that's prophesying the end times. And now when Jesus shows up and he's in this region of Lebanon and he's going to heal this man who has this speech impediment. So let me put this together. Isaiah is a prophecy about the end times. Isaiah is saying this, here's how you will know when the rightful king of the universe, the Messiah, God himself, will come to set up his kingdom and usher in the eschaton, usher in the end times. Lebanon will see his glory and the mute will sing for joy. Those are two things. So you see that there's, we we brush a few things back here and there's dynamite buried in this encounter here. Mark is showing us the king is here. The end of all things, the eschaton has begun. The Messiah has come and with the king has come his kingdom. Jesus is the one who is going to make this world the place it's always meant to be, the place it's supposed to be. He's going to make the desert blossom with life. He's going to take everything that's wrong with this world, and he's going to make it right. He's saying this, when Christ comes and sets up his kingdom, the blind will see in his kingdom. The deaf will hear in his kingdom. The lame will leap like a deer in his kingdom. The tongue of the mute will sing for joy in his kingdom. Now, I grew up hearing this. I grew up hearing this stuff, and I always thought, oh, yeah, heaven. When we go to heaven, all that stuff's going to be true. But that's not what's going on here, and that's not what he's talking about. This isn't going to take place just in heaven. Heaven is simply the waiting room to enter into God's kingdom, okay? Theologians call it, when you, if you die and you go to heaven, you're in the intermediary state, okay? You are in between. You are in the waiting room. It's glorious, but you're, it's a great waiting room, okay? All right? I know, you know, it's not just, you know, the lame waiting room with K-Love playing, right? Old, good housekeeping magazines. This is a good waiting room, right? But it is just a waiting room. The last chapter of God's story is when the king comes to earth, destroys all of his enemies. Listen how Isaiah 35 says it again. Say to those who have an anxious heart. I'm going to say to you, some of you who have an anxious heart. Be strong 
Fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. That's where Jesus will destroy every evil power in, on this earth. He will judge the wicked, and then heaven will drop down out of the sky and is united to the earth, and we will live forever in a totally renewed earth, a totally renewed world. Okay, So the end of the story of God isn't going to heaven when you die. It's heaven coming down and meeting the earth, and the world is completely renewed, and we get to dwell on this earth with Christ as our king in a totally renewed earth. Okay, That's the end of the story. It's this earth upgraded. It's this earth renewed full of the glory of God without any trace of the curse left. And we don't have to look far to see the traces of the curse, right? We have sickness, we have pain, we have death, right? We have strife and turmoil and racial division and all kinds of stuff that's going on in our society. All of that will be gone. We'll be living in a new earth with no curse. It'll be heaven on earth. And that this should help some of us because some of us, I've heard people literally say, I don't want to go to heaven. It sounds boring. Because we have this idea of floating on a cloud, right? Of just being spirits. That's not what this earth's going to be about. When Christ was resurrected, he had a new physical body. You could touch him. He could sit down. He could eat fish. He did this to prove that the earth, the created order, is not all bad, and I'm going to renew it. My goal isn't to think like the Greeks and get us out of this created world and just be ethereal spirits floating around in Neverland. That's not the goal. The goal is to renew all of the earth. So the things that we like to do, we will do in a new, I can't imagine fishing. I don't even think it's going to be called fishing in the new heavens and the new earth. It's just going to be called catching. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Got him right, right away. No snags in the new heavens and the new earth. I took my kids fishing. It wasn't fishing, okay? That's called nagging, I think is what that's called. I told my dad, I said, any adult male who complains that their dad has never taken them fishing has never taken their children fishing. You don't fish when you take your kids fishing. All you do is run between them, getting them unsnagged, rebait. My worm's gone. Rebaiting their hook, throwing it out there, right? They're off chasing things, getting poison ivy. Fishing is not fun with kids. I'm just going to say that. But in the new heavens, the new earth, it will be. All right? So, it's this earth, renewed, upgraded full of the glory of God without any trace of the curse left. But we should notice here, Jesus isn't, he says when the king comes, he's going to bring vengeance and justice and recompense with him. We should notice Jesus doesn't come dropping vengeance bombs on people. This is one of the reasons why people couldn't get their head around Jesus. Like you read one verse and it looks like he's fulfilling it. And then the next verse, well, he's not doing that. I don't get it. He's not fitting in this box. Seems like he's fulfilling all this prophecy, but then there's other things he's just not doing. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But if we're going to understand this story that we're reading today, we need to see it as a fulfillment to the prophecy in Isaiah 35. This is about the coming king and the renewal of all things. 
Jesus is in a sense saying, the king has come and with me comes my kingdom. The renewal of all things has been initiated. Okay, I want you to think about that. The button on the machine has been pushed. The countdown has begun. With Christ coming, I have initiated the countdown to the coming of the kingdom. And in a sense, the kingdom is here, but it's not fully here yet. So, this encounter is all about the, Jesus being the king who's going to renew all the earth. I want us to see this kind of as a microcosm of Jesus' entire ministry. I want to see us, this is kind of the prototype. This is kind of our instruction manual, let's, let's say. This is an outline for us in how to renew our city. How do we renew our neighborhoods? Okay? That's what we're about. We're about renewal. God takes messed up people like us, he renews us. He sends us out on mission to renew our workplaces, to renew our neighborhoods, to renew our city, that we're meant, now listen, we can't usher in the kingdom of God. Only Christ can do that. But we can work out the implications of the gospel in our everyday lives and bring renewal to our city. But we're gonna see how do we do that? How do we make disciples? How do we plant churches? How do we renew the city for the glory of God? I think this text is going to show us a pretty good outline of how to do that. Look at verse 32. Again, they brought to him a man whose deaf had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hands on him. Now, we know this, this dude has had a lot of separation. He's been pushed to the margins of society. He's had a lot of embarrassment, ridicule, ostracism. But he has a few friends and family members who care for him enough to get him to Jesus so Jesus can lay his hands on him. Now, what's, this is what's surprising to me. It should not be surprising to us that Jesus heals this guy, right? Surprise, surprise. Jesus has been healing all kinds of people through the gospel of Mark, and he's actually been doing it to, to cases that are far worse than this. The leprous, the dead, right? The demon-possessed. He's been healing all kinds of things. But what should catch our eye is how Jesus heals this person. Up until now, Jesus says, you're healed. Boom. Go home. You're healed. Your daughter's healed. Your son's healed. You're healed. He's the son of God. He's the same God who spoke the galaxies into existence, who said, let there be light, and there was light. So when Jesus says, be healed, people are healed. But that's not how Jesus heals this man. The way that he does it is very interesting, and I think it's got a lot to teach us about how we can Uh, see Jesus change us and change our cities. Let's look at it. Verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were open. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. Okay. Now, this is interesting to me. He's in a pagan context. A man is brought to him who can't hear, who can't speak very well, who's damaged. Let's just say it. Who's, you can clearly see the repercussions of the curse on this man. 
And that's what we should see. Anytime we hear of someone getting cancer, anytime we see someone sick, anytime we see someone born lame or deaf, or we should see this is a repercussion of the curse. I can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth when this will be fixed and this will be totally redeemed. And Jesus sees this man and he does something very interesting. I just, I, I honestly, like I am so tore up from this encounter. You know how if you feel, if sometimes in our society, because men love strength, we, and we, we, women, you like strength too. We want to be strong. We want to be right. We want to be, you know, we want others to think we've got it all together. And sometimes when we get around people who have disabilities, it can make us really awkward. It can make us really uncomfortable. We, we, we want to shy away from them many times. We don't want to be near them. We want to push away from them. We feel guilty about our own maybe health and our own blessings that we've got in our life. So it just, it, it make, it's just sometimes it can create this real sense of awkwardness. But you see Jesus here, the son of God, a man who's got all these disabilities, Jesus gets down and encounters him personally, one-on-one. And he does what to many of us is really weird things that Jesus does right here, okay? But it's almost like he's encountering a child. It's like he's getting down in the sandbox and he's getting down on his level and he's playing with him. He's encountering him. A man who people would be pushed away from, who doesn't have relationships, he can't communicate well. You know, he's blind, right? He's got all this stuff going on with his body. He can't, and Jesus is entering into this man's story. He's, inter- he's taking the gospel and he's packaging it in a way that this man can understand it. This, made it, this man had a condition that made it impossible to hear the gospel. And I'm going to say this. There are many people in our society today, in our culture today, that because of the way that they, are, they were raised and because of just the, the nature of the curse and the society that we're in, they're deaf. They're deaf to the gospel. They have a condition that makes them unable to hear the word of God, the way it's meant to be preached and proclaimed and listened to. Rosaria Butterfield is a great example. If you've, I've quoted her in the past. She was a um, scholar for uh, Syracuse University. She was a, a lesbian living in, in a lesbian relationship. And she was all about the poor. She was all about the uh, impoverished and the, 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 those pushed to the margins of society, and she felt a great sense of being right, and she could not stand Christians. All Christians in her mind were bigots. And then she moved in next to a reformed pastor, and they were living next door to each other. And she would never, ever in her life, she said, go to a church because she knew all, if I go to a church, they're full of bigots. That's all. They just judge me and they'd condemn me. And I'm not going to a place like that. I can't stand them. That's what's wrong with the world is those Christians. And then she got, she was commissioned to write a book about the, about the right wing, basically about conservatives. And in order to write something about the right wing, she said, well, I better read the Bible. And her, she, was a, she was a literary scholar, so her whole job was to take works of literature and to examine them and to see how they fit together as a whole, okay? So if you're reading Moby Dick, you would read it and you go, oh, chapter four, that author just made a mistake there and it didn't work with the whole unit. He, he should have made these changes in chapter four. And she's reading the Bible now and this pastor's next door and she's like, she'd get to a part where she just didn't understand it. So she'd knock on his door 
He'd say, come on in, come on in, have coffee. He was nice. He wasn't bigoted like she thought he was bigoted. He was welcoming. He would converse with her in a way that she could understand the biblical narrative. They would argue. He wouldn't get all red in the face and offensive, right? He wouldn't kick her out. He wouldn't call her names. He, she could have a dialogue. And over a period of two years, first off, she said, the Bible is the most cohesive literary work ever created from a literary scholar. She, she's not saying, I believe it's true. I believe it's divinely inspired and all this stuff. She says, it's got the same story from Genesis to Revelation written over a period of 1,400 years or so, and it's all saying one story. This is miraculous. This is unbelievable how consistent it is all the way through. She was convinced of it, right? And over a period of two years and over hundreds of coffee dates with this pastor, right, going over to his house, encountering him in his community, she started seeing things. She started seeing how many different types of people went to his house, tattooed, Black, white, woman, gay, straight, all the, and she says, I think he, his community is actually more welcoming than my community. His community is more diverse than my community is diverse. He cares about the poor more than I, I think he's on the inside. And she's felt herself on the outside. And after this period of two years, she's convinced and she's converted to Jesus Christ. And she becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And through many years later, then she, you know, she becomes a celibate. She, she, she's a, a, a lesbian who's celibate. And then after many years, she, God redeems her and renews her. And then she, she's now she's married and she's a pastor's wife. It's a phenomenal story. But what, I tell the story because she says this. When she first was converted in his living room, she said, oh, no. Now I have to go to church. And she said she would pull up in front of the church <laughs> And she, for, for the first few weeks or first months, she would just watch. And she said she'd see these big vans pull up and all these homeschool kids climb out of these big 15-passenger vans. And she's like, oh, I thought only painters used those vans. People actually have families that big. And she was like at the zoo just watching, right? And she, what she's trying to do, she's trying to, tr she would never go to the church. She would never go into the church, so she would never hear the gospel, and this man is the same way. He's an outsider. He's a Gentile. He physically can't see. He physically can't hear. So he, could, he would never get around the gospel. He would never be able to hear the gospel unless someone came alongside of him and touched him. And there are many people in our society that they're never going to come to this gathering. You can invite them a hundred times and they're never going to come. But they'll go to coffee. They'll come over for game night. You can encounter them in your normal life and you can share the gospel with them as you build a relationship with them. And I think this is showing us a very key piece that Jesus himself, the son of God, could have stood up and could have preached the gospel. Hey, they're either gonna get it or they're not. You wanna get it? Come to church. Somebody does. He incarnates himself. He gets in on his level. Builds a relationship here. It's a deeply personal moment. It wasn't a canned sermon. Listen, I'm all for evangelism and all the tracks that people use and all the, you want to go to the Romans road and you, bam, 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 bam. This is how you get them saved. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus' encounter is deeply personal. It changes. We just see in chapter seven, he calls one guy a name. He calls his other girl a name, but then he gives her grace at the same time. And now we just see him blow the wheels off and get so intimate with somebody. He's licking his fingers, putting them in his ears. Don't try that. That's 
awkward. He's adjusting his approach according to this man's need. So hands-on. Look what he said. He takes him aside. Look, he takes him aside from the crowd. This guy's been a spectacle his whole life. It's been a spectacle his whole life. Look, there comes the blind guy. There comes the deaf guy. It's been a spe- and now Jesus takes him aside. He doesn't want to make him a spectacle. He doesn't want to use him as a big conversion story. Poof, watch what I can do. No, he cares about this man. He takes him aside, deals with him privately. He puts his fingers into his ears. He spits and touches his tongue. See, he's, he's, this guy can't hear, he can't see, so he's doing this hands-on stuff, packaging the gospel in the way that he can understand it. He's contextualizing, if you like that word. And then look what he does. Looking up to heaven, okay? He's looking up to heaven. He wants everyone, anybody that does see it, he wants them to know, I'm not a mirror, I'm just not a, a, a sideshow. I'm praying, okay? I have a connection with the Father. Whatever, any good thing that's about to happen, it's coming from the Father, he prays, and then this next one just kills me. He sighed. He sighed. Now, this word is special. It means to groan in pain. It's like an inarticulate moan. So this guy comes to Jesus. Jesus touches his ears. He touches his tongue. He looks to heaven. There's, there's a weight. He's experiencing this man's torment. He's experiencing this man's brokenness. He's feeling broken because this man is broken. This is what it means to be moved with compassion. You can put yourself in that situation and you just feel, I don't want to say bad, because it's not, feeling bad isn't the, it's not a pity. It's moved with empathy deep in his heart. He's moved by this man's need. Isn't this just a stark contrast to the Jesus we saw last week? This one, I mean, he's moved emotionally. Jesus here is just melt in your mouth sweet. And that's important for us because there are going to be times when the most loving thing that we can do is use sharp and offensive language to make a point. But if that toughness isn't balanced by this type of tenderness, it's not gospel. It's just your personality. You're just a a truth speaker, right? It's not good news gospel. And the same thing with this this sappy, sentimental, you know, touchy-feely type of stuff. If this isn't balanced with being able to speak the harsh word and tough word when needed, you're just empathetic. You're just sympathetic. You're just a really a softy. You're a feeler, right? But Jesus is both. He connects deeply emotionally and he can speak the harsh word when it's needed and necessary. Now listen to this. This, I read this story from Tullian Chavigian, and that's Billy Graham's grandson, if you didn't know. He tells a story that stuck with me. He says this. I'm just going to quote it. I remember being at a conference years ago when during the panel discussion between the various speakers, one of the speakers, an editor of a conservative political theological magazine, was expressing his frustration with many of the political left-wingers in an unnecessary 
unnecessarily sarcastic and condescending way. When he was finished, John Piper, one of the other speakers sitting on the panel, spoke up and said to the man with the utmost seriousness and precision, for a long time, I have appreciated your ministry. You're an astute observer of our culture. I read your magazine every month. It's always insightful. But there's one thing missing from your ministry. The other speaker looked at Dr. Piper and he asked what it was. Piper looked at the man dead in the eyes and in front of 5,000 people said, tears. Tears is what's missing from your ministry. What's he saying? This right-wing, conservative, pound-the-truth magazine. You know what's missing? Empathy. Groaning. Sighing over the brokenness. Weeping over the brokenness. That was Jesus' response. If you're only clearing tables and flipping tables and driving people out with a whip, you're not like Jesus. Jesus could absolutely come down and touch a man and not be awkward. And I mean, this is, I don't understand this. This kind of emotional connection, this kind of empathy. Can I ask you this morning, when was the last time you've been moved to tears over the brokenness in our city? When was the last time? You've groaned in prayer over a neighbor or a coworker or a family member who is experiencing a painful situation without Jesus. I can honestly say that this is seriously convicting me. What's missing from my ministry oftentimes? Tears. What's missing from your ministry? Are they? Are tears missing? Jesus has pulled this man aside. He's touched him personally. He's made this encounter a deeply, deeply personalized one. He's prayed with him in a way that he can understand. And he's shown this man that he is emotionally invested in him. He loves him. He wants him to know God. He wants to see God move in his life. He wants to see God heal him. And then he speaks. Oh, I have a real problem with street preachers. Getting up on a little ladder on the street corner and yelling at people and having signs and telling them that they're going to hell or telling them that God's judging them or whatever. This is, that's not how you renew a city. That's how you tick a city off, actually. This is how you renew a city. Listen, he comes alongside him. He connects with him personally. He's emotionally invested. Then he speaks. He earns a right to be heard relationally. Do you see that? The son of God does this. How much more should we? Now look what he says. Aphathra, that is be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. I love this. And Jesus, this is hilarious to me. This is like, just like a little kid. This is like taking a kid to Chuck E. Cheese and saying, be quiet. Right? He just heals him from everything that's wrong with him. And we don't even know. And he's also what Jesus always does when he heals these people, right? Is he gives them a new heart. He deals with them eternally. He gives them salvation, right? So he's fixed him physically. He's fixed him spiritually. And he's like, this is called the, right, the, the great secret. Like, like, don't tell anybody about that. Right. 
Right, and look what happens. The more zealously they proclaimed it, right? They are stoked. They are excited that this person, their friend, has received healing. He was broken. Now he's been made whole. This is how you renew a city. God, you come alongside people. You share the gospel in a way that they can hear it. They experience the healing and the, and the, and the love and the joy that comes from Christ. And they tell their friends and they explain it. They tell others. And on and on and on it goes. Now, this is exciting to me. What did this man contribute to this beautiful outcome? Think about it. I'll tell you what he contributed. Blindness, deafness, lameness, and silence. That's what he contributed. But what does God contribute? What does Jesus contribute? Sight, sound, agility, joyful song, right? Here's how Charles Wesley, Charles Wesley wrote this hymn, and this is what he says. Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ, ye blind. Behold, your Savior come, and leap, ye lame, for joy. See, this is what God does. Salvation is impossible for this man. He can't hear the gospel. He can't believe the gospel. He can't see Jesus. He can't do any of the things. He can't ask Jesus into his heart. His tongue is bound. He can't do anything to save himself. God does it all. That's grace. Every ounce, Jesus opens his eyes. Jesus opens his ear. Jesus loosens his tongue. Jesus strengthens his leg. That's what Jesus does. Start to finish salvation is all God's. It's all the Lord's. You do not contribute anything to your salvation but the lameness, blindness, deafness that made it necessary. I can get a little excited about this. You know what, and look, look what the man does. I, I, I love this. The first words out of this man's mouth that we know, and all of them say this, they were astonished, verse 37, beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute sing. Now listen, can you say that about Jesus, about your life, how it's going right now? Behold, he does all things well. This is the response of faith, the proper response of faith. The people have seen a glimpse. They've seen the king and they've seen, they've opened a window into the kingdom and they've looked in and they said, everything Jesus does is good, right, and perfect. He does all things well. Now listen, I said before, I think this is the way to renew a city. When God wanted to renew a world, he sent his son to live amongst us, to embrace different cultures, to cross cultural lines, to befriend the broken. The people that that our society pushes out and they say those people are weird or those people are dirty or those people are unclean or those people are are bad. Jesus came and lived amongst them. Jesus came and healed them. Jesus came and related with them personally. And guess what? When he left, he filled us with his spirit, and he said, you go do the same thing. 
The way I've made disciples, you go make disciples. So I'm going to ask us this morning, what would our city look like if we believe this? What would our city look like? I'll tell you what it would look like. It would look like wealthy people moving into hurting neighborhoods to help renew the neighborhood. That's exactly what Jesus did. He left heaven, the riches of heaven, and he come entered this earth. What else would it look like? Maybe it would look like you befriending the poor. And I don't mean throwing somebody some, do- some, some dollars. I mean having them over for dinner, having a cup of coffee with someone who's beneath your economic status. It would look like crossing cultural and racial divides. It would mean befriending people who have confused sexual identities. Being in relationships with them so they can see the gospel put on display just like Jesus did. Maybe it would look like us creating nonprofits to serve underfunded areas in our city or underfunded needs in our city. It's going to look like living and loving our neighbors in our, right where we, wherever we live, loving our neighbors. It's going to look like a million different things. But this is how, folks, this is how we're going to renew the city if we're going to do it. Now, God's renewing the world without us. <laughs> but if we want to see the kingdom come in our little sphere, our little neck of the woods. If we want to see the poor come to know Jesus like this, the broken come to know Jesus like this, our neighbors and our friends and our family and our coworkers come to Jesus like this, that's how it's going to be done. It's not going to be done because Justin's a decent preacher. It's not. Many of them, most of them won't even come into this room. It's going to become through relationships with you. It's my prayer that every single person in the Quad Cities would know someone, have a relationship with someone who's in a missional community, who's in a community that's shaped by the gospel. But they're one invitation away from encountering the missional community. Now, what's it going to take for us? See, See, I can feel right now, oh, the guilt the, the good old Christian guilt, which is a juxtaposition in words there, because that there, for the Christian, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, right? What's it going to take for our church to do this? What's it going to take for our church to look like Jesus here? Well, it should be no surprise if you're around here. I think it's going to take us catching a greater glimpse of the gospel, getting a better view of life inside the kingdom and the work that Jesus, the king, has done to rescue us. Think about this. Think long and hard about this as I close. Isaiah says, God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Did Jesus come with vengeance? No. He came to save us by taking God's vengeance. He came absorbing the wrath of God. Jesus didn't come swinging a sword and riding a war horse. He came carrying a cross to take the sword of God to his own heart for us. Isaiah says that he was led like a lamb to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Think about that. 
See, Jesus became the mute. He kept silent so that he could take this man's place and free his lips to sing for joy. See, that sigh, that groaning, that's the weight Jesus feels of what it's going to take to actually heal this man spiritually. Jesus couldn't just heal him just because he was God. And he definitely couldn't give him salvation just because he was God. He could heal him because he was the Christ who would take this man's place and bear the wrath and bear the punishment on the cross. He would take the punishment for this man's sin and he could dish out the healing the righteousness that only the Son of God has. Think about this. Do you lack boldness in sharing your faith? You need to see Jesus silent before his accusers, carrying his cross to take your place to loose your tongue, just like the man with a speech impediment here. Only a deep impression on your heart of what Jesus has done for you will actually fill you with the joy that shouts, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf and the mute speak. Or do you lack empathy? We look to your life and we said, you know what, I think the one thing that's lacking from your life, this is probably, this is one of the things that's lacking from your approach in missional community. It's lacking from the way you talk to people and you disciple people. You know what's lacking? Tears. If that's so, it's because you have forgotten that you were once deaf, dumb, and blind to the things of God. We're born deaf, dumb, and blind Jesus already told us the heart is the problem. He told us the last two weeks, you're born with a sinful heart. You're born deaf, dumb, and blind. But Jesus, when he saw you deaf, dumb, and blind, he didn't go, oh, jeez, another one. When Jesus saw you at your worst, Jesus sighed. He groaned. He wept. In the garden, it said he wept, he sweated drops of blood for you. That's how much he groans for you. When you're at your worst, look at Christ. He's at his best. He's weeping for the broken. He's sweating drops of blood for the broken. He's dying for the broken. When you're at your worst, Christ is at his best. Only, not because of anything you've ever done, but only because of the grace of God. This is what will change us. All we brought to the table. We're like this man here. We bring blindness. We bring deafness. We bring lameness. We bring hardness of heart. We bring our own silence. But Jesus touched you. Or maybe he's touching you right now. He opens your eyes to see him. He opens your ears to hear you. He softens your heart. He comes at you in whatever way that's going to get your attention. Some of us, <laughs> right? Some of us, it's a swift kick. And some of us, it's so gentle. This is, Jesus does whatever it takes to get your attention. Now listen, I pray if, if whatever side of the horse that you fall on, you lack boldness, I pray that you ask him for it today and you see Christ 
what he's done for you. If you lack tears, I pray that you seek Christ and you ask him for. Obviously, you can't make this happen, right? You can't be in a setting and go, I should really cry right now, right? It doesn't work that way. What does Jesus do? He connects to the Father. He prays for this man, and it's in his prayer that he groans. It's in prayer. It's in this intimate connection with the Father that he sees the brokenness of this man. This man isn't just blind, deaf, dumb, cut off from community. This man is lost. This man doesn't have a relationship with the Father. This man is missing the one thing that will satisfy him and ultimately will renew him in the new heavens and the earth, new earth. Jesus sees his, into his deep need and he groans. But he also meets that deep need right in the moment. I pray that God would stir us up, that he would give us this kind of compassion for the lost, for our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, that we would ask him to soften our heart that he would wet our eyes for the lost that's around us. You can pray for that. You can ask God for that, and he'll grant it. He'll, add, he'll, he'll give that to you. Father, I thank you for inspiring the writing of this. I thank you that this little gem was placed here on purpose. You know what? Stop. I, I just... This is an eyewitness testimony of Peter. This, this right here. Peter's eyewitness testimony, and Peter includes this. We know Peter. <laughs> Peter's a knucklehead. Peter's brash. Peter's the, one of the first ones to speak up. Peter's a truth-first guy. And I think he includes this in this text here for a very specific reason with all the glorious details. I want you to see this. Peter is watching this encounter. And he writes down step by step by step what Jesus does. Pulls him off to the side. Puts his fingers in his ears. Spits. Touches his tongue. He looks to the father. He sighs. He speaks. How detailed of an account. Why? I think Peter, loudmouth, brash type of guy, I think this was convicting to him. I think he, he said, you know what? This, I need this. People need to see this side of Jesus. And he includes it here and not in any other gospel. I think it's special. I think it's here for a reason. I think we need to think through the implications. And I'm going to go back to prayer and pray through the implications. Father, again, I pray that we would be like you because you became like us and you fill us with your spirit. We were deaf, dumb, lame, and blind, and yet you came and you accomplished salvation for us and you fill us with your spirit. And now we can follow your example because of the power that you've given us through the spirit. And I pray that we could live out this example in our city. We could befriend those not like us. We could be intimate. We could be vulnerable. We can be open. And we can be bold to share the goodness of God and the grace of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news with them. And we would see nothing short than what they saw here. We would see the miraculous take place in our city. We would see dozens, hundreds, 
come to know Jesus Christ, who most people would look at and say, no way, that person's too far gone, they're too much of an outsider. We would see that, not because of our goodness, but because of your goodness. Father, would you do this for us? And for, the, for those of us in this room who've never embraced you by faith, we've never said, everything you do is good. I pray this morning that you have bent down to them, that you've touched them, that you've been intimate with them on their level, that you've spoken to them in a way that they can hear it, and their ears are open and their eyes are opened, and they will embrace you by faith. And for those who embrace you by faith, we have an unstoppable joy that's waiting for us. Yes, we get to tap into it in here and now, but it's coming with the renewal of all things. When the curse will be lifted and everything will be made right. And Father, we say today, come Lord Jesus. Come again and set up this kingdom. We long for the day when everything will be made right. I thank you for your spirit as we come to the table this morning. Give us a deep awareness of our brokenness and also a deep awareness of your goodness and grace to us in Jesus Christ. As we break the bread that is your body broken for us, as we drink the cup that is your blood shed for us. Father, thank you for this grace this morning. In Christ's powerful name we pray, amen.